Every day, several large trucks full of discarded goods arrive at a warehouse in the eastern suburbs of Hamburg, Germany. And a team of people sorts through them and categorizes them, but this is not normal uh, waste processing factory. Stielbruch, which is German for stylish inconsistency, is run by the city's sanitation department. Instead of destroying or disposing of these uh, throwaways, the municipal team checks them and, if necessary, repairs them before putting them on sale to the public. It is described locally as, quote, the IKEA of used goods. If you've ever been to IKEA and you just wander forever, that's the the principle there. 400,000 objects are processed through two giant warehouses every year, everything from well-worn teddy bears to refurbished laptops and kitchen counters. Steelbrook uh, contracts technicians and craftsmen who ensure that all furniture is given a thorough beautification and renewal. All electronics can be sold with a one-year warranty. Steelbrook sounds like a place of restoration to me. Now, I can't prove that what I'm about to tell you is true, but you can't prove it's not, so we'll just run with it, okay? I, I think if Jesus were to walk into Steelbrook, he'd be all smiles. I think if Jesus were to walk in and see God's people rehabbing and renewing something old and broken, I think he'd just be ear-to-ear grin. The Bible's pretty clear. Jesus likes places of restoration. We're going to talk about one today. Open your Bibles to John chapter 5, verse 1 to 15. That's our text today, John 5, 1 to 15. Thanks for being here. Uh, For those watching online, thanks for logging in. Appreciate you doing that. Uh, It takes a little extra work to do church online, okay? So fill out your online connection card. Be active in the chat. uh, And and if if we haven't had a chance to connect even digitally, like my email's all over our website. So like shoot me an email. We can set up a Zoom meeting or something. For you here in the room, uh, please fill out your your in-person connection card. Again, that helps us. Um, disciple you as well, and we're grateful that, that for every week for those of you who do that. Uh, I'd love, if you're new, I'd love to meet you. I plan on being down front here when we're done. Uh, come down and say hi. That'd be, that'd be great. Uh, one thing to let you know about, uh, you've got an announcement on the back page of your bulletin that we don't have 2020-20 next week. Uh, for those who, who, who might not know, on the second Sunday of each month, we've been doing this thing called 2020-20. It's something that Kyle and I uh, did in college, and it was just awesome. So 20 minutes of teaching, 20 minutes of worship, 20 minutes of prayer. Uh, and it's been a lot of fun. And so a few weeks ago, the staff, meet, the staff were gathered around in the conference room, working through the calendar for the next couple months. And I said, okay, we've got 2020 uh, scheduled on uh, the second Sunday in February on the 12th. And all those sports nuts on our staff, nobody said a word. Uh, okay, so that's the Super Bowl. Um, you know, uh, apparently there's a football game or something. Anyway, so uh, we're not going to do 2020-20, but you're not going to miss out on the opportunity to pray. Because the very next night, Monday night the 13th, Chapel Rock is privileged to host uh, the first night of prayer for the Prayer Fast Global Network. It's a collaborative effort of TCM, one of our longtime ministry partners, and discipleship.org and renew.org. They're having a big conference in April, and they're going to gather people to pray to just to get ready for the conference. And so if you're a prayer warrior, uh, you can come out from 7 to 8.30 in the Fellowship Hall next Monday night, so a week from, week from tomorrow night, next Monday the 13th from 7 to 8.30. And so you're, you're, not, you're just going to push it back by a day. You're not going to miss your opportunity to pray. TCM will run that whole thing. I don't have anything to do with it other than show up and, you know, hold the door open when people come in. So uh, the purpose of these meetings 
And, and indeed, that conference is to help uh, refocus the church on prayer and fasting and Jesus-style disciple-making. And so you're invited to be part of that. Today, we're continuing our series, You Are Here. Getting close to the end of it. We'll wrap it up next week. But we've been talking about these places in, in Israel that even though these things happened long ago and far away, it still affects our story. And what happened there still changes us. It still impacts us. All right, last fall I had the opportunity to go to Israel, and this series is, is the outgrowth of that, that um, trip. Our You Are Here place today is the Pool of Bethesda. B Bethesda is a Hebrew and Aramaic term. It, it, Bet Hezda, it means house of mercy. It's just north of the temple complex in Jerusalem. Let me show you a, a scale model of Jerusalem. Let me show you this. So this is a scale model of Jerusalem in the first century. Um, to my knowledge, this is in Jerusalem, and this is the courtyard of the Shrine of the Book. The Shrine of the Book is where they keep the Dead Sea Scrolls. So this is, the, this is like the outer courtyard of that place. And I don't know what the, the scale is. It's like a 1 to 150th scale or something. It's shrunk way down. But it's still huge. I mean, it's still, it takes, you know, five, five minutes to walk around the thing. So there you can see the temple. This would be the view, and it's panoramic, so it's distorted a little bit. But um, if you were standing on the Mount of Olives looking west, this is your view. This, so this is what Jerusalem looked like uh, in the time of Jesus. Let's zoom in a little bit, okay? So here you can see the Temple Mount. That was front and center in the picture. There's Bethesda, right? So there's these two massive pools surrounded by this red-roofed portico, right? And then there's a roof down the middle, so the eastern wall, again, that, that's facing the Mount of Olives to the east. You can see up in the top right corner, there's the site of the crucifixion, the traditional place, okay? And the Antonia Fortress, which is just connected to the temple complex, that's where Jesus was scourged. Um, you can still go there. And, um, of course, you go down way into the basement. It, it was street level in Jesus' day, but it's 30 feet down now. And, and these stones were where his blood spattered. This is the site where Jesus was whipped and scourged. And um, it is this um, Antonia Fortress. And if you can hold it together uh, in that place, you're a stronger soul than I am. Because I lost it. I fell apart. Um, but when we went in 2016, I, I didn't get to go this past time. But you can see, so this is, it's really close uh, to the temple. Uh, you know what, tell you what, let's just go there. Watch. Hey, Chapel Rock. This is the pool of Bethesda. It's mentioned in John 5. This is the place of healing. This is a place where people would come to find healing. The story was that an angel would come and stir the water, and in Jesus' day, the water level, I'm going to lift you up here, you can see was way deeper down there than it is, obviously, today. It's been built up. Over my shoulder there is the Church of St. Anne. That's a crusader church. It was built um, sometime after 1100 AD. Still there. And people, if you can hear people singing in the background, they're singing in that church because the acoustics are amazing. In this place, in John 5, Jesus heals this man who'd been sick longer than a lot of people in Jesus' day even lived. The story was an angel would stir the water and the first one in would get healed. Now, whether or not that actually happened, I don't know. But this place was seen as a place of healing. And Jesus finds a guy who's sick, and he makes him well. He heals him. He makes him whole again. But then he talks to him later, and he says something really cryptic. He asks him, do you want to stay well? And we're going to press into what that means today. 
and what real healing is all about. Now I know that I have no doubt some of you are a little frustrated right now that you couldn't see more of the pool in the video. I would be too, so let me show you some pictures, okay? First, let me give you an idea of how deep it is. Um, I, this, I mean, it looks, it's a long way down, right? And it looks more so because it's been built up. I don't know that it would have been necessarily this deep in Jesus' time, um, but it, it, was, it was a repository for quite a, quite a lot of water, all right? Here's a view from the other side. You can see here, right? So here's the, the, whole, the whole complex. And like I said, you've got kind of two main pools with this central, um, co- you know, patio between them, kind of a covered roof patio, all right? Uh, and it's, it, it's wrapped on sides by, by these columned porticos. Here's a wide shot, just a panoramic, just to kind of give you a sense of the whole site. It's, it's pretty, now you need to know, this is just north of the Temple Mount. This is some of the most expensive real estate in the world. Right? And rather than let it get built up, they've said, no, we're going to reserve this and, and keep this site as a historic place. This is important. And there's actually still water. If you go all the way down to the lowest part, there's a, a place where there's still some water down in the deepest uh, part of the pool. We're going to read today about a paraplegic man that Jesus healed. It was in this place that he was restored. He was healed. But it, it was, I think, more, it was intended to be more than a, just a physical restoration. Dr. Dwight Peterson once spoke to a meeting of Bible scholars, uh, and he gave a talk on uh, the plight of paralyzed people. That's the word that very often gets used in Scripture. I think the proper PC term nowadays is paraplegic. He gave a talk on the, 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 the nature of what it would mean to be paraplegic in the first century. It was a good talk, but far and away, what was the most, the standout feature was that he himself was in a wheelchair. He is a paraplegic. Can't walk. And so it, people, I mean, he, boy, he had their attention, right? Because he's, ta- he's describing what, what challenges that a paraplegic would have in the first century. And as much as they very re- face very real challenges now, 2,000 years ago, you just turn the heat up to 11, and, I mean, he, he talked at length about the problem, I mean, a, apart from just the lack of mobility and of the lack of being able to earn a livelihood and the lack uh, or the, having to deal with social isolation, he said, consider the problem of personal hygiene, you know? Bathrooms are abundant and generally handicap accessible now. They sure weren't in Jesus' day. And think about someone who, you know, to my knowledge, they didn't have wheelchairs then. He's got to drag himself everywhere. His hands would have been totally chewed up from rough cobblestone streets and gravel pathways. You know, they often don't have bladder and bowel control. So you take all those things together and you, you kind of make a composite picture of what this guy's life would be like. People had to move him from place to place unless he decided to crawl, just dragging his legs behind him. You know, he, he, he would have, his entire income was re- reliant on charity, his friends and family. If he didn't have control of his insides, you know, he would have had a hygiene problem. People would have stayed away from this guy. <laughs> and you can still find people like this in places all over this world that everyday life is like that for them. It's agony. <laughs> And so when you know those things and you remember them as you read the text, you don't have to imagine why Jesus picked that guy. The whole place is full of sick people. There's sick people everywhere. You're going to see that. 
but he picked this one dude and he healed him. Let's look at the text. John chapter 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, that's on the northern side of the city, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, like I said, means house of mercy, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Again, that's longer than a lot of people even lived back then. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. It's kind of a little sub-theme in John's gospel that Jesus never gets caught until it's, until it's time. He just is able to kind of filter and slip out through the crowd until his moment comes. And then when it comes, boy, does it. Verse 14, later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. See, John wants you to understand that this place of healing, this place of restoration was only such because God chose to do it there then. <laughs> And it happened to be on the Sabbath. And in that moment, Jesus pressed against these man-made rules about the Sabbath to heal the guy in an act of divine mercy. But he warns him later against taking God's great mercy lightly and thereby living in such a way as to negate its healing power. Here's what I want to tell you today. Here's the big idea this morning. Jesus heals our brokenness. But we have to, we got to want to stay healed enough to keep it. Jesus heals our brokenness, but we must want to stay healed enough to keep it. A few weeks ago, I, I, and I referenced this, referenced this in a previous message, I asked a sermon on my Facebook page, or asked a question on my Facebook page, um, you know, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? You know, just short, brief thing. And Uta Maluski responded to it, and I was just, her answer just so blew me away, I thought, okay, I gotta know the story. So I messaged her like, what? Tell me that, what's going on there? And, uh, and so she told me, and I'm like, okay, the whole church has to hear this. So Uta, come share with us. Uta is one of our members here, uh, serves with Mission Indy, with Ron uh, Griner there as, as, as their admin. Uh, and it's just this incredible story. So sister, thank you for coming today. Appreciate you doing this. You. So you guys gotta listen to this, check this out. Okay, so roughly 22 years ago, I started having back pain. Uh, day after day, the pain got more intense. And then finally, three years in, I sneezed one morning, and the pain just shut down from my back all the way to my toes. It was so intense, I couldn't walk. Uh, I wasn't a paraplegic, but I couldn't walk. My husband had to carry me to the bathroom. Thank God we had a bathroom. <laughs> um, so I, I had surgery, and uh, prior to that, I had had physical therapy, which didn't help, cortisone shots that didn't help. But the surgery took away at least the intense pain. Um, but unfortunately, after I had the surgery, I was diagnosed with SI joint dysfunction. 
the joints in my back were just not strong enough. The muscles were not strong enough to keep the joints in, so uh, it kept going out of, out of joint. Um, Dr. Mark Verkler, not a medical doctor, but a Christian speaker and co-founder of Christian Leadership University, he attended our church in Buffalo, and we often talked. When I asked him for prayer one day, he said, and this is what I had replied to you, if God would heal you, but you continue to do things that harm your body, what good would the healing be? And I'm like a little bit offended. <laughs> you know, what was I doing? I wasn't sinning. I wasn't um, smoking, drinking, all the other usual thing, overeating, at least not at that time. Um, but then a light bulb went off. I, I had a desk job, and I did not exercise at all. So I had no muscle strength in my core at all. And after my chiropractor got me back to the point where I could do it, I started to exercise. Now, I had a Christian chiropractor, which was awesome. And he put on the top of my chart, Uta will dance. So this was his prophetic uh, announcement for me. Uh, so I started exercising. I couldn't do much because I also had severe asthma and uh, chronic bronchitis. But I started with swimming and Pilates, like some mild things, and then stationary bike. And then a friend at the YMCA talked me into going to the spinning class, which I could not have thought that I could ever do. <laughs> but I started slow. I started what I could do. And as I went on, I got stronger and stronger, and I still ride about seven to eight miles every day. Um, I lost my pain. <laughs> the exercise didn't only help strengthen my core. It also has strengthened my heart. It helps me emotionally. Uh, it's just helping me to stick um, to things that I wanted to do. Even though I've never really been very disciplined in doing things for myself, I was, all, I was working at a church, I was uh, doing things for other people, and I wasn't doing things for myself, like exercising. But um, I learned an important lesson at that time. Discipline helps me gain access to a power I don't have. So if I started small and did a little bit at a time, I got stronger and stronger and stronger. Uh, I believe in prayer for healing. I've experienced healing myself, and I've seen it in others. I go to the doctor regularly. I take meds when I have to. But sometimes we all just need God's wisdom and grace to make a lifestyle change. Would you appreciate, uh, thank you, sister, for sharing that story. Um, I, I, man, I, I hope you were listening because there are applications for you all over that story. If, if God would heal you, but you keep doing stuff that hurts your body, what good would it be? Hmm. I want you to think about that. If God would take away from you the thing that troubles you, but you keep choosing things <laughs> that put you right back there, what good is the healing? Jesus finds this guy, and he says something that's it's perplexing, it's hard, it's difficult. It, this is one of the hardest things Jesus says. Like, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What? 
Like, like you know, is, is Jesus teaching that there's a sin behind every sniffle? No, there might have been for this guy, but not as a general principle. But I think what we can learn from this is that Jesus will give you wholeness, but you've got to want it enough to keep it. So how do we do that? Well, there's something you have to remember, and there's a response you have to make. Some of you are like, you used that same outline three weeks ago. I did. It's a good one, and it fits. It works. So there's something you need to remember. Here's what you need to remember. He picked you. You need to remember that he picked you. In the text, Jesus is back in Jerusalem for a feast. We don't know which one. Probably didn't matter. Whatever it was, he probably had to go to the temple for something because as we saw in the picture, the pool of Bethesda is very near the temple. And so it's natural to ask the question, well, why are all these sick people at this pool? Like, what is going on? Well, the answer is right in verse 4. Look at verse 4 in your Bible. You know, what? You don't, you're looking for it, but I, I see the look on your face like, I don't have a verse. Is my Bible defective? You know, it's not. You know, you might have it in a footnote. If you're using a digital Bible, you might need to touch uh, like a, 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 you know, a letter or a footnote marker or something like that. There are manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts we have don't have verse 4, which says, from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Just, just a brief lesson on how your Bible's put together here, okay? The oldest copies of the Gospels that we have date from the early 100s AD, and I think there's a section of a copy of Mark that might be dated at around 90 AD, like like within living memory of the second generation of Christians. So I, I, want, I want just to have, so you have confidence in your Bible. The oldest manuscripts we have we, the, are from a time when people who were trained and discipled by the apostles would have remembered what happened. You know, have you seen the meme of the little old lady in a college class and she raises her hand like, that didn't happen that way, I was there. Right, it, it's kind of that idea. Verse 4 starts popping up in manuscripts from around 400 AD. Still really old, but because the oldest manuscripts don't have it, the translators have chosen to leave it out. Just really kind of as a, as a way of just being safe, okay? They put it in a footnote. But here's the thing. Verse 7 is talking about something, right? When the paraplegic guy says, I don't have anyone to help me into the water, <laughs> like... He's referencing something. So verse 4, I think, while it might not be authentic to John, it does preserve the truth, that that really was a belief in that time, okay? So this is, now I want you to think about this, right? So the idea is an angel comes down, stirs the water. I don't know if there were bubbles or a, a spin cycle or, or, or what. I don't, I don't know. Uh, who's the first one in? It's not the paraplegic. It's the guy with the headache, Right? It's the lady with the hangnail, right? Because they're just perched on the edge, ready to go. Michael Phelps, you know. It's not the paraplegic guy. <laughs> he can't get there in time, right? I, I, suppose, I mean, I guess he could have laid down at the edge of the pool and just dropped in as soon as he saw the water move, but he probably also can't swim. This is not a good idea, you know, for him to do that. So, and this is where it starts to get weird. You're like, it wasn't weird already? No, it starts getting weird here. Jesus asked this question, do you want to get well? It's a real good thing that wasn't me because I'm too sarcastic. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> right? That's, but what, what he says is so significant because literally what he says is, do you desire to be made whole? Oh, well, when you put it that way, yeah, that sounds great. Yes, please. Where do I sign? Jesus is saying, do you want to be transformed from being sick and dirty to healed and clean? In fact, we get our word hygiene from the root word that's translated well. Do you want to be well? Now, I want you to notice that, that John gives us no indication that Jesus had compassion for this guy. Sometimes the gospel writers will tell us that, right? Jesus felt compassion on them and he healed their sick. John didn't say a word. Now, he probably did feel compassion for this guy. Remember, there's sick people laying around everywhere, right? And Jesus picks this one dude. What motivates that? Compassion. But John doesn't say that. And there's nothing in the grammar, in the, in the text of what Jesus says that would indicate that he has compassion. Because all of these verbs are commands. Get up. Take up your mat. Walk. This word of command, and I don't know if the guy felt strength in his legs that he'd never felt before or what, but he stands up. And, he, and he's able to do this. There's, it's not like Jesus feels sorry. He doesn't like walk up to the guy and put his arm around and say, boy, it must really be hard to be a paraplegic, isn't it? Yeah, it is really hard. I don't like it. And I, I'm dirty and my hands are rough. You know what? Why don't we just fix this? That doesn't happen at all. Get up. So we have to ask the question, is God's healing of this man more a function of his reason than his compassion? Does God heal this guy because he chooses to not because he feels badly for him. I think so. And here's why I tell you that. Some of you in here have prayed for relief from, from, from pain, from suffering for a long, long, long time. And for whatever reason in his sovereignty, God has said no repeatedly to that request. And I want to tell you this morning, it does not mean that he loves you less. That when you struggle, when you go through hard times, when you go through places where your heart just twists inside you, and you've asked God to take it away, and for whatever reason he doesn't, it doesn't mean that he loves you less. It's just that in his sovereign will, as a function, he says, this doesn't fit the plan. For you to be different this way doesn't fit my plan. And, and that's hard to hear, but he's God, we're not. Jesus says, if you want to stay well, you have to remember that God made a choice to love you. I want you to understand this. When Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sin, it's not because necessarily or specifically he looked down from heaven like, wow, they're messed up. I better go fix them. No. No. He said, I love them too much to let them stay that way. I'm going to go fix this. It was, it was a choice. He made a decision to do it. It's not that he doesn't love you. He does. It's rooted in love. It's rooted in his person, his nature. But you need to understand that his choosing of you, his, his, he picked you because he loves you. When Jesus died on the cross, in your place, for your sin, you were on his mind while he was on the cross. I told you before I had the opportunity to go to Israel twice just this past year, but the first time in 2016. Now, I'd only been on staff here at Chapel Rock for a few months by that point. 
like what, like three, I think, about Fred, about three months by that point. And so we, we got to go to the pool of Bethesda the first time. And while we were there, our tour guide, Mike, who I hope you get to meet one day, I'm hoping to lead a trip from Chapel Rock either in 2026 or 2027, so we'll bring Mike, our tour guide here, to to talk to you, because if if this series doesn't get you pumped up, Mike can. Um, So we'll we'll, we'll bring him here, but he he had us do the special prayer time, and he said, I want you to pray for someone back home who's sick. And I prayed for some of you. I was still new, and I was still learning names, but I prayed for some of you here at Chapel Rock. And then he said, okay, I want you to pray for you to be healed. And, and there was something I've been struggling with, wrestling with for a long time, and I asked God to heal me. I said, Jesus, I'm in this place where you healed this guy, and I, I want you to heal me. Will you please heal me? And God responded. He spoke. It wasn't audible. I didn't hear a voice. He spoke into my soul. And this is a direct quote. I remember word for word what he said. I said, Jesus, will you heal me? And this was his response. I did 2,000 years ago on the other side of the hill. And the implication was, Case, you keep, you keep choosing stuff that doesn't support the healing from brokenness. I picked you. I healed you. I changed you. Why do you keep choosing stuff that doesn't support that? It's the most loving rebuke I've ever gotten in my life. And I've had quite a few. See, when Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sin, he provided a healing, a restoration that supersedes everything else. And I'm of the conviction that sometimes we get so wound up about my, my physical sickness or my mental struggles that we forget. We don't put priority on what Jesus did for you on the cross. Because when you start doing that, when you see that as the ultimate restoration, that he picked you, some of the rest of the stuff doesn't seem like it's as important. Does, it go, does the pain go away? No, it may not. But there's, there's a healing that's bigger than that, stronger than that. You gotta remember that, especially when you're in the middle of the hard. <laughs> you remember that. But that's not all. There's a response that you need to make. The response is that you need to keep picking him. We need to remember that he picked us, and then we need to keep picking him. In order to stay well, we need to remember that Jesus picked us. And then we need to keep picking him. Look at verse 7. The paraplegic says, Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. (laughs) I love this. Because the word translated help is the the Greek verb balo, which means I throw. He's, He's looking for someone to chuck him in the water. How many times do we do that, church? How many times do we face something difficult and we're just looking for someone to chuck us into a solution instead of trusting Jesus? You know, I just lay there by the edge and roll in. You know, like, come on, man. But he obeys Jesus. He stands up. He's miraculously healed. He picks up his mat. He starts to walk away toward the temple, carrying his mat on the Sabbath. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Jewish leaders see this guy, which you can imagine, I mean, they're, they're clustered or rather thick around the Sabbath, you know, or, or on, around the temple on the Sabbath, right? There's a lot of them there, and they see this, what are you doing? You're not supposed to do that. Now, the law didn't expressly forbid it. It talked about carrying a burden. I don't think a rolled up sleeping bag is a burden. And so we, there's a couple ways to read his interaction with the Jewish leaders, right? Like, we could see it as 
Maybe he's trying to shift the blame to Jesus. But there's another way to read the text. It, it, the second way is like, almost like he's saying, like, he made me well. I would do anything he said. And I wish I could say that that's what the guy meant. I don't think that's what he meant. In fact, Jesus' words to the sick man when he found him later at the temple in verse 14 hint that his sickness was the result of some kind of sin in his life. Now, is this teaching that there's a sin behind every sniffle? No. No, there really isn't. I, I like how scholar Gary Berg put it. He put it, suffering is not an index of a person's sin. But having said that, specific suffering may still come from specific sins. The most natural reading of the verse suggests that Jesus is pointing the man to repentance because in his case, emphasis mine, there is such a link. <laughs> I, I, whatever it was, Jesus warns this guy. He goes, listen, you've got to make choices that support what I've done in your life. In church, he might be telling you the same thing today. You've got to make choices that support what I've done in your life. You want to stay well? You just keep picking Jesus. You pick him. I think the man was afraid and in his fear he tried to throw Jesus under the bus. And so what we need to learn is that if, if we want to stay well, if we want to maintain the shalom, the wholeness that we've been given from Jesus, we need to keep picking him. I want to tell you about a time this happened on our trip. We were at Magdala, which is a, a village in Galilee. They, they found it. Uh, back in like 2009, started digging it up in 2013. It's an active archaeological site, but there's also a, um, a, a, a Roman Catholic church there. Uh, the dig is being personally financed by a wealthy Catholic uh, oil billionaire from South America. So it's kind of weird, right? Because you go there and everywhere around you, you're hearing Hebrew and you're hearing Arabic and, and some English, and then you go there and it's Spanish. <laughs> you walk in, hola, like in the world. Um... It's just weird. And, and it's run by this wonderful Christian man, uh, Father Kelly. He's an Irish Catholic, like from Ireland. So he's got the accent and everything, you know. I mean, you talk about a, a living embodiment of a stereotype in the best possible way. Think of the stereotype of a good and godly Irish Catholic priest, and that's Father Kelly. He's a wonderful man. Let me give you just a real quick story. Uh, it, it was my job on the trip to be the rear guard. Right? I, was, I, was the, I was the guy at the back making sure everybody got back on the bus. It's like herding cats. Anyway, um, I'm standing at the back. Our, he was running a little bit late. He was supposed to speak to our group. And so he comes up and he taps me on the shoulder and he said, are you the doctor, with the Dr. Mark Scott group? And I said, yeah, we are. Are you Father Kelly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So we're trying to be quiet because someone else is talking, right? And he said, so are you guys like, uh, are you evangelicals? And I said, well, sort of. <laughs> he goes, what do you mean? Uh, I said, well, our form of worship is functionally identical, but we just tend to have a higher view of the sacraments, communion and baptism, than most of our evangelical friends. <laughs> and he goes, oh, so closer to the right view. <laughs> That's giving an idea, Father Kelly. So he brings us into this chapel, which was dedicated to the raising, uh, Jesus raising of Jairus' daughter. We talked about that a couple weeks ago when we were in Capernaum. And there's this beautiful mural, this fresco, or mosaic on the wall. And um, he says, who's the youngest girl in the group? And everybody laughed, because it was Marcy. Uh, and it was Marcy by decades. I was the next youngest person. She's Emma's age. <laughs> I'm old enough to be her dad. 
okay? So he, she said, uh, Marcy, is there, is there someone in our group who, are, who would be like your parents? And she, she said, now in a weird quirk, her parents waited a long time to have kids. She's got a brother, but her parents are my parents' age. So it's boomers that had a millennial. Skip Gen X. Okay, like normal. Anyway, um, so, so you've got this, this situation. She said, uh, Dr. and Carla, Dr. Mark and Dr. and Miss Carla Scott. And so he got my folks up there. And, and, and here's a picture of them, right? So there's Father Kelly, right? My dad and Marcy and my mom. And they're sitting there in front of this beautiful mosaic of, of Jesus. You can see him reaching out to take Jairus' daughter's hand. Now here's what made this moment give us all God bumps. Marcy is an orphan. Her mom died about three years ago, her dad last year. There is no way that Father Kelly could have known that. Not possible. But he picks this girl and he has my folks come up and lay their hands on her and he begins to talk about the pain of losing someone close to you. He begins to talk about the pain of someone in your family dying and he begins to talk about the, the small sliver of hope that must have been born, this little tiny spark of hope in Jairus' and his wife's heart as Jesus comes into their home and reaches out to take the hand of their dead daughter. And, and so he has Marcy and my folks stand up and, and he tells her to put her hand on Jesus' hand and my parents to put their hands on her and to reach out in this moment and then in, in a moment, just after this picture was taken, she, she bowed her head and you can see her kind of shaking in grief as she relives the death of her parents. And Father Kelly's taking pictures of this with her phone and he's telling her, look at Jesus, girl, look at Jesus. And she said, I can't, I'm crying. And he said, I know. That's why you have to look at Jesus. Well, I'm pretty sure that's what he said because it got real dusty in there all of a sudden. <laughs> what I'm telling you is that the paralyzed man in John 5 failed where Marcy succeeded. In her moment of restoration, in that moment when Jesus picked her, she picked him back. And if you want to be restored... If you're dealing with something physical today or something mental today or something spiritual today, you need to know that when he died on the cross in your place for your sin, he picked you and he's calling you today to pick him back, to keep choosing him. Church, let me tell you, if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus in just a second, you're gonna have an opportunity. We've already had two come today and be baptized. He picked you. Pick him back. Decide today to give him your life in repentance and confession and baptism and discipleship. You will receive God's spirit to live inside you and that will begin this restoration process. But maybe, maybe this morning, others of you have grown comfortable with a certain level of brokenness in your life. I can't tell you how freeing it is in those moments of temptation, in those moments of doubt and struggle to say, Jesus, I choose you, not my brokenness. 
I pick you, Jesus. So when you walk out of here today, you're going to do it with a renewed commitment in those moments of struggle, in those moments of hardship to say, Jesus, I pick you. That's what you're going to do today. You need to remember he picked you, and you need to respond and pick him back. Did you hear me today? Jesus heals our brokenness, but we've got to want to stay healed enough to keep it. How are you going to respond today? I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to sing together. And do you respond as God leads you today? Will you keep picking Jesus? You do that.